1: Allow me to confide a few darker twists now that I'm throwing this out there to you. A perfect stranger, I'm making privy to my snowballing epiphanies. For every blandishment lavished on her, for every popping flashbulb and cream puff story, she enjoyed a red carpet existence. By her mid-twenties, in fact, some of those who exalted her as magnificent and hypnotizing clamored for her summary obliteration. They woofed that she was obsolete, a statuesque has-been replaceable by the next hot number. She'd done her duty. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Chip Jacobs, who's written a sweet and witty novel about the Colorado Street Bridge, a historical arched concrete monster that spans the Arroyo Seco in Pasadena, California. Jacobs provides heartwarming stories from the months leading up to a lethal accident before the bridge's inauguration, all focused around an ostrich riding inventor who adopts a simultaneously destructive and loving dog who saves his life after an explosion. After the bridge is completed, the novel skips forward to its 80th birthday when another fellow and his dog have the opportunity to right some of the wrongs caused by the people who built the bridge. Hi, Chip. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on, Gailey.
1: So there's a lot to discuss. First of all, what spurred your interest in this particular
0: bridge? It's a good question. I would just say proximity. I'm a Pasadena kid. And this bridge occupied a big space of folklore where we all grew up and ran around. And people called it suicide bridge, and uh, nobody even questioned the origins of all that. And I just I had a teenage car accident right underneath it. Uh, and later, I wrote a feature article about this bridge, exploring the construction accident. That's really the heart of the novel. And it just I felt like the bridge just kind of like wanted me to to write her biography. And frankly, I just got tired of people associating it with macabre acts because I believe that bridge bridges are good things in the world. They connect people. And so I just took all those ingredients and said, I'm going to use history and fiction to bring a piece of concrete to life.
1: And what was the genesis
0: of this book? I would say, um, you know, being a being a Pasadena who travels over it, who hears people talk about it, who is friends with folks that have come across bodies, who also is mesmerized by the book its physical appearance, and it kind of puts you spellbound, especially when you see it at night and it's misty, and like you know, it was just like a tractor beam. And when I decided I wanted to write a book about a dreamy quixotic inventor and his dog knowing what I did about this bridge and my own past with it as a kid around here, it just seemed like a a very organic synthesis.
1: It also seemed like your whole novel is a love letter to the city of Pasadena.
0: Would you say that's correct? It it is a love letter as well as a uh, hopefully uh, tender chastising that uh, we better beware of vanity. But yes, I love Pasadena, but I don't love every aspect of your city. Just like if you love somebody, you don't always like every element of their behavior. But, you know, in in my heart of heart, it's a shadow history of Pasadena that says, you know, you've got 90 percent of it right, but the 10 percent that you left out of the coffee table books is really the most fascinating. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's talk about your protagonist, Nick Chance. He starts out working on an ostrich farm. Where'd you come up with that?
0: Uh, You know, almost everything in the book is uh, in terms of history and landmarks like Cost and Ostrich Ostrich Farm are are true. You know, um, I uh, did research on this particular enterprise and just I could picture myself riding an ostrich, getting in trouble there, you know, thinking of ostrich feathers as its own sub economy, just the height of couture. Uh, For ladies fashion, especially. And it just seemed like this is a good place for him to stumble on his path to work on the Colorado Street Bridge, you know, and, you know, think of people riding ostriches, racing ostriches, sharing ostriches, making a huge amount of money through the scientific process of plucking ostrich feather and then turning it into almost anything you can imagine.
1: Nope, can't, can't think of that, sorry. <laughs> the two main characters are Nick and his dog. So the dog is a very special dog. Is he based on a dog that
0: you had or a dog you always wanted? Uh, it, the dog was based directly on uh, my previous one, Augie, who was half lab, half boxer, just like Royo. And I just took uh, Augie's sort of semi-psychic abilities to know my mood to be a character, to give me entertainment when I was blue, and I just expanded it. And, um, you know, I I noticed that in, in a lot of literature and in cinema, the dogs tend to be very vanilla, goofy, dopey sidekicks. And I wanted my dog to be more of a propulsive character that was nudging his companion, I don't want to even say owner because I don't think we own an animal. It was pushing his companion to do what the stars wanted him to do, which was take a chance as a Nick chance, but to do something outside of his own interest. And so I, I made the dog, you know, with a big libido, a uh, sense of humor, uh, like my real dog Augie, just destroy everything he could come in contact with. But you can never get upset with him. So I wanted my dog to be an imp. But I also wanted him to be a little bit of a four legged guardian angel
1: did you expect readers to figure out that that royal really was communicating with Nick?
0: yes, I did it's It's funny you say that because I felt like that was so overt, and I did it knowing it was going to turn off some of the natural historical fiction readership you know who expect you know uh, the narrative to fall within the uh, sort of signposts of traditional literature in that genre. Um, I, what I had, what, what I think I underestimated was people's inability to realize this is a reincarnation story of the same two characters in the same city. But in the second life, the dog is a little more assertive in trying to get his companion to do the things he's supposed to. And the main character, Nick, is sort of a shell of his previous self. He's not as dynamic or appealing or uh, charming. He, he's a bit lost because in his previous life, he had his chance to 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 tell the truth about the Colorado Street Bridge. And he he was too uh, craven to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. So oh, there's so much going on in, in this book. Um, prohibition. The laws didn't start till 1920, but here we are in 1913,
0: and it's affecting your characters a lot. Can you talk about that? I, I for sure will. You know, I think just I, I was given advi- two pieces of advice that I always think about whatever I'm writing write visually and write a story you would want to read. And I just am a gigantic uh, fanboy of irony. And in this case, Pasadena was founded by folks from Indiana and Iowa, and other parts of the Midwest, as well as the East Coast, with the idea it was going to be a citadel of abstinence, where other big cities in America had gone wrong because of saloons and fights and domestic violence and unemployment, all tracing back to alcohol. Pasadena was going to be a dry town built on morals, industriousness, aspirations, but you weren't going to have men face down in the gutter on a Saturday night. And in fact, before the bridge is built, there was one saloon in town, and the self-righteous um, anti-alcohol zealots uh, drove, literally drove this guy out of town. I-, I think he was, I think he like ran towards the hills. And um, to think that Adolphus Bush, who was really the founder of modern day Anheuser Bush Corporation, really the modern day, or sort of the the uh, the, the beer savant of his time, he created this magical 80 acre or so gardens built on beer windfalls, built on, you know, every man's champagne. And the fact that he had this, you know, green heavenly expanse, you know, built from, you know, people's alcohol adoration in a city that, you know, founded on the exact opposite principle. I just found that a delicious contradiction
1: hmm. So how did his wife, Lily, warrant so many cameo
0: appearances in the book? Um, that's an excellent question. I, I felt like the book needed to have a moral compass. And that was Upton Sinclair. But I wanted the book to have like a godmother, you know, who defied typical stereotypes of rich people, because not all rich people are bad, just like not all middle class people are good. And she just had a very big heart. And in some ways, I think she felt imprisoned by her own wealth and fame. And so she gave lots of money and her of herself to orphans, civil war veterans, the needy, the people that affluent Pasadena side of Pasadena, um, you know, would kind of brush off their shoes and it's all true. It's all based on the research I did. You know, she really was somebody that, um, you know, didn't just act out of noblesse oblige. She acted out of the goodness of her own heart. And for Nick, whose mom had relocated back to Indiana, where Pasadena's roots were, uh, you know, I, she's in a way his kind of surrogate grandmother, you know. And I liked also infusing the book with a little bit of German in it, because I find that interesting and Germans, at the turn of the century, were really sort of the most envied country in the world. Yeah. So, uh, since you brought so up Upton I Sinclair. Yeah. Let's talk about Upton Sinclair, since you brought him up. For sure. So Upton Sinclair, uh, uh, when I read a, when I read The Jungle at high school, I, I fell in love with the guy. I, I don't know if I agree with everything he was enunciating, because he was a very... Uh, he He was an early adopter of kind of democratic socialism in the United States, but he had courage he had i mean he just I, I think people forget what an uh, exquisite writer he was, besides being a quote muckraker and mm-hmm. uh, you know he took on all you know the Rockefellers, the Carnegies um, and and paid a big price for it with his own health in his own career. And he, he did find Pasadena about this time. And he came out here before he wrote uh, oil, which is about standard oil. Uh, you know, the octopus uh, and later became the basis of the book. There will be blood. Um, but he, you know, he was an East coaster out of the sunshine of California. And I'm sure he saw the West side of Pasadena where all the rich lived and it gave him some heartburn. And I felt like, He uh, he he challenged Nick's views about the city. He mythologized his hometown. Nick was the original Yankee doodle dandy. Uh, Upton Sinclair, I think, was rather cynical about cities and institutions. And I wanted to put them together. And I thought the best, most entertaining way to do it was to have them go to a greasy spoon And have the odor of that greasy spoon sweating bullets because he recognized Upton Sinclair. And he worried if he wrote one article about the unhygienic nature of his meat shack, it was going to drive him out of business. You know, so there's the there's the irony again.
1: Mm -hmm. What should we make of Jules Cumbersmith? Why does she and why does she end up in jail?
0: Um, Jules uh, was very much influenced by my own daughters who uh, are. Of course, believers in the Me Too movement, women's rights, you know, they're not very happy with the patriarchy today. And, and I wanted to create a really strong female character with a dark kind of traumatizing past, a little bit like Nick, whose own father, uh, you know, was effectively um, schizophrenic, heard voices in his head when he moved back to Indiana. Um, um, and so Jules uh, was the bo- is the girlfriend of Nick. She at first doesn't like him. She thinks he's cocky. She thinks he's uh, too smitten with his city. Um, but, but you know, opposites attract and their chemistry ignited. She, um, she uh, is approached by the same kind of mysterious person that Nick is, and she recovers a plaque, which is based on the true words of Teddy Roosevelt, who was also a, uh, who also, kind of worship Pasadena and the bright, beautiful uh, intellectual place that it was. And he had come out to the Arroyo Seco, which is the great valley on Pasadena's western border. And I think uh, Teddy Roosevelt saw where the world is going and he said, oh, Mr. Mayor, that's a be- beautiful natural park. Don't let them spoil that. And Pasadena has spoiled a lot of its nature, even though it, you know, is an environmental town. And Jules Uh, You know, through a weird series of events, it recovers this plaque emblazoned with Teddy Roosevelt's beautiful words. And, uh, you know, it um, she has to actually break into people's houses to get it. And for somebody who had been a former kleptomaniac, who was a brilliant and yet troubled person who had trouble speaking during the day because of an incident that happened. I thought, you know, she has to pay the price for doing the right thing. You know, and that's what the book always comes down to. You know, the road, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, in her case, you know, good intentions were paved uh, in, behind iron bars of a jail cell in Pasadena.
1: Mhm. So Nick, back to Nick Chance. He's surrounded by some loving friends like Fleet, yes. but he's he's made some enemies. So what's your take on that, the the friends and the enemies?
0: Um uh Nick, uh you know, Nick was a solar power inventor at the turn of the century. At at a time when average Americans were beginning to plug appliances and other things into outlets created by thomas edison 's discovery, and I, I I wanted Nick, even though he 's a Homer, to be an iconoclast and Actually, when you go back and read about the history of energy in the United States, there was a time when solar power really had a moment, and um, you know, but by creating an alternative to the edison company's electrical outlet, you know like any genius you know, uh, who came up with an invention, he is going to have natural enemies. I mean, the status quo is not going to give up its spoils without a fight. And so Nick makes enemies within, uh, you know, the, the Edison group, he makes enemies uh, of people who think he's a ruthless guy who just is got a very chipper personality. He makes enemies, uh, among those Pacitanes who realize, you know, he probably knows more about the Colorado Street Bridge than is getting getting out in the newspapers. So in a way, Nick was a very dangerous guy. Hmm. Why does he fall so in love with the bridge? Because the same reasons that I did, you know, it 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 uh, is mesmerizing. It's engrossing. There's very few bridges in the world that curve like it does. So it appears to be levitating. Uh, it doesn't look like a piece of public infrastructure. It actually looks like a piece of art where they took uh bow arts architecture, combined it with uh, a Romanesque uh, arches, almost like when you go to see where Caesar marched his troops in from foreign battles. You know, it, 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 it and yet for all its concrete, it just seems like nature willed it to be there and i find it a very magical a very magical structure even though it has this other alter ego and it you know every novelist as i learned as a first time novelist you have to have a you have to have a hypothesis and my hypothesis is that this bridge which was designed to create to connect people at the beginning of the automobile age was used as a place for profit glory ambition political feuds placating the rich, and those lesser instincts kind of grafted onto the concrete itself. And that increased its appeal to those decades later who were hopeless, that were looking to end their life in a world that didn't seem very promising. So, I mean, to answer your question, I I just find it magical. And I wanted my character to look at that bridge and uh, just see something that's calling to him.
1: Can you explain it doesn't say in the book, what does it connect? Pasadena to what?
0: Okay. Um, yeah. I, I um, there's a paperback version of the book coming out and I try to better explain that. Um, it, it, it's really connecting the west side of Los Angeles with the east side of Pasadena. I'm sorry. It's connecting the east, uh, the east side of Los Angeles with the west side of Pasadena, right? And they're two contiguous towns but in a broader sense, especially as automobiles are coming in, it's connecting the two great valleys of Southern California, the San Fernando Valley to the west, and the San Gabriel Valley to the east, and um, so it was a critical uh, it was a critical span to um, allow cars to go across in like a minute. Instead of forcing people in wagons and on horses by foot to take switchbacks down to the Arroyo Seco, which means dry wash in Spanish, and was very treacherous. It was steep. People, uh, wagons fell over. People got bit by rattlesnakes. They broke their legs stumbling over boulder, boulders. There was floods. And so that bridge really was a talisman of the modern era.
1: Wow. Okay, so let's discuss food. You—it's um, all over: marzipan, toffee, disgusting meat—or or this is my favorite scene, one of my favorite scenes when Nick's best friend Fleet pitches a Saturday a Saturday night dinner at the Hotel Maryland to celebrate Nick's new job, and quote: um, Fleet says, "Rose-covered pergolas, brass spittoons, elaborate sauces." But then Nick wants to go to a nearby deli instead,
0: right? Carry on. You know, um, what, you know, you. I, I think you can. Uh, I, I'm not a foodie, but I've learned that you can learn a lot about a city's past by the restaurants there. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I probably read 25 books about Pasadena. Of course, you know, as a writer, you can only use about three percent of your facts because it is supposed to be a novel based on characters. But my goodness, the the selections of food in Pasadena were outstanding. I mean, you could have these very heavy meals at fancy restaurants like the Hotel Maryland, the of course the Raymond Hotel, La Pintoresca. But there was also delis. There was Japanese restaurants. <clears throat> you know, I also found it really fascinating. You know, today people are ordering, especially during the pandemic, from Grubhub and Instacart and um uh, you know, other, other food delivery services. But back in the day, you know, there was tamale carts, there were sandwich carts, there was ice cream carts. So, and you know, people, they, you could get ice delivered to your house. Right. Mm -hmm. And so things, you know, food was on wheels, but in the scene you're mentioning, they eventually go to what was really a Japanese restaurant. And, you know, so there was ethnic cuisine here, even at the turn of the century. The major food I really uh, showcase in the book uh, was at Buford's Meat Shack, which is where Nick takes uh, Upton Sinclair for a super unhealthy, greasy sandwich. And I must admit, I do like myself an occasional greasy sandwich. And uh, based off different places in Los Angeles, I experimented with, especially in college. And uh, a screenwriter friend hosted a book club. And I was so, uh, so humbled because he made an, he he tried to impersonate Buford sandwiches at this party and they were delicious, you know, and it was juicy and sloppy and there was onions all around. And I have had so many people come up to me and and laugh. God, I could really go for a Buford sandwich right now. Um, Your
1: book is made up of a lot of stories within stories, some of which come back later to haunt us.
0: How long did it take you to plot out all this complexity? Uh, thank you for asking that. It took me a very long time. I, um, I, I'm, um, I like to think myself is, you know, uh, think that writing comes easily to me. And it always has. And, and even though I didn't realize it at first. But writing a novel is a whole nother ball of wax. And it took me about eight drafts to do it. I I at first had very little magical realism. Then I went way overboard and had just uh, barrels of, of magical realism and murder. And I tr- the book lost its way. It's like it, it stepped on its own compass. And mm-hmm. um, I, I decided it was I was just kind of I was kind of like adding bells and whistles onto, onto something with already you know a lot of accoutrements. And so I cut a lot of that back. But, you know, in the end, after the draft that really became the book, I, I appreciate, oh, my God, I have like two dozen loose ends to tie up. And, and I and I went I blew through legal pads writing notes to myself. OK, how does this resolve? How do I end that? How do I make this make sense? You know, and I think like all first time novelists, I still put too much in there. And, um, you know, people that are reading the book, especially quickly, aren't picking up on the things that I wanted them to. So for my next book, I have to keep it a little simpler. But I wanted in the end my first book to be full of heart and magic and tragedy and also, you know, irony and sarcasm. Um, you got because, it. You did it. And, and you know, I I it um you know, I, I actually kind of had a dream about the end sequence because you never know how to finish up a book. It's always the problem even writers I love, I can see now struggle to come up with a satisfying ending. And so I, I, you know, I I knew I wanted my characters to end up someplace where readers could judge where they went, but I needed to bring in everything that I had, you know, loaded up in the first life, including Teddy Roosevelt, Upton Sinclair, you know, um, Nick getting a chance to, uh, you know, uh, square off against a dog killer in 1913. And, um, you know, I wanted it to be a little bit like a Pasadena's Sgt. Pepper album, where all the famous people of Pasadena's past are there to behold the real story of the bridge, the the story city fathers didn't want you to know, because it wasn't, uh, you know, sweet as a rose in in our Rose City, so to speak.
1: Um, Even the blowhards are entertaining, and there are several. So just between you and me, I won't tell anyone. Are they all based on the same person? Someone who
0: really annoyed you? Yeah, um, the blow. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of blowhards in life, I, and most of them are men. Uh, and yes, I uh, um, the the one that is the villain through two lives really becomes a parent in the second life. He is based on somebody I went to grad school with, and mm-hmm. uh, down to his appearance. And I, I I always thought that I always thought he was the first clear sociopath I met. Does he know that he's in this book? Heck no. I would not want I to. Him, I won't tell I won't tell him. Not okay. even gonna, I'm not even going to mention his name, but he, <laughs> okay. he, is, he is absolutely based on that. And, you know, you asked, the, you asked a really incisive question before about enemies. And, you know, Nick, uh, you know, just because someone is uh, a wicked person doesn't mean occasionally they don't have a point. And so Nick... Uh, meets his fate in the first life because he didn't keep his promise to someone uh, who wasn't the best of character, but had lost someone he loved to the Colorado street bridge, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I do think I, I I very much believe in karma. I believe in the afterlife. I believe there aren't any accidents and you know um, this book is just infused with my own spiritual ideology.
1: Uh, Royo, the dog in both 1914 and 1993, this is a quick question. Likes chewing gum. Is that really a thing?
0: Um, I don't know, but I know my previous dog, Augie, got into everything from Christmas candy to Wrigley spearmint gum to, uh, you know, ingesting socks. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know if it's a thing, but, you know, I, I wanted, you know, um, I I wanted the dog in the first life. To want to become more human. And so the way he became human was imitating the, the human he's closest with, who like okay. to chew gum, who like to play stunts, who like to, you know, uh, uh, laugh in a crooked way. And then in the second life, the dog has kind of seen what humans do to each other. And I think he feels happier, lower down on the evolutionary scale. Well, Chip, this was such a fun book,
1: especially during this difficult period in our world. So, um, what are you working on next?
0: I am. um, uh, I'm redoing uh, for a paperback version a true crime book I released uh, in 2012. Um, I have a nonfiction project I'm doing, but my real focus is my follow up novel, which is going to be not going to be a historical novel like this. It's going to be Pasadena centric. And it's based on a true story that happened to me where a brilliant, if, have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Will Hunting? Yeah. Okay. Think of Will, but he's living in Pasadena and he's brilliant and he's impossible and he's entertaining and he's heroic and he's dark. And yet he's, you know, uh, you know, a positive force uh, in the world. He, he, this person is, is a high school classmate of mine. And uh, he read about a book that I had done and he approached me as he was dying to, to craft an apology letter to oh. uh, the most bullied kid in a prep school who he had inadvertently caused a great deal of upset. And so it's really about the power of apology. It's really about, you know, um, uh, manipulation. It's about the power of contrition. And it's also about friendship, where you least expect it. So, it's—am um, I allowed to use a uh, an F, the S word on your show? Yeah. What okay. is it? It's—it's it's tentatively word? called "Dear Shithead." <laughs> and, okay, um, I, I'm interested. Know, yeah, and it's—it's it, going to jump back and forth in time between 1980 and 2000, and it was inspired—like it was inspired by my friend lost his life to multiple myeloma, but was so heroic and insightful. And I've never seen anybody practice gratitude like him. And yet he was haunted by this one incident that took him away from going to like an MIT and maybe working at NASA. And, uh, you know, he actually was an early innovator with the cloud and he is a perfect person to interact with a writer who's not as cool as he seems to be. And that's going to be based on my character. You know, I'm going to be this guy that's getting a lot of publicity, but I'm not exactly uh, you know, a flawless human being where somebody dying of cancer shows the real meaning of being a person. Wow. Well, keep me
1: posted. We're interested. I will. New Books Network is interested. Thanks so much, Chip. It's
0: been a pleasure talking to you. And I wish you the best of luck on everybody should read your book. Yes. And thank you so much. You ask great questions. I felt perfectly at home here. And, you know, I just, you know, I, uh, my heart breaks for people uh, that have lost a loved one that need entertainment, that can't find a smile. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to contact me directly at chip at chipjacobs.com, I will get them a book one way or another and I won't charge them.
1: And thank you for joining me again. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Chip Jacobs, author of Arroyo. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle, Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As new BookNet listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.